Ew. I think oh, it might be makeup. Oh, well, that's probably me. I'm wiping yeah, down the podcast that's, studio that's with Clorox wipes. Um, James, how was your morning? So I spent the morning disinfecting the house because my wife's workplace had a connection to a uh, coronavirus case. No. Yeah. So, you know, lots of just extra scrubbing. I mean, it was, I think, the kind of connection that a lot of us have at the moment, which is that he was at a conference with somebody who had the case. So now they're, you know, on work from home and we're dusting everything down again. Did you teach teach the dogs how to wash their paws for 20 seconds? Hobbs believes the whole thing is fake news. (laughs) Like, despite being a dog, you know, he's crossing boundaries there. So hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, foreign policy's daily podcast on all things coronavirus. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer here at Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, a senior editor at FP. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about countries where it seems like there should be larger outbreaks than are currently reported. And most prominently, India, the world's second most populous country, which for now has just over 60 confirmed cases of coronavirus and just one reported death. Which is remarkable and almost suspiciously low when you consider that there are 1.4 billion people in India. Now contrast that with Iceland, which has one of the highest number of cases per capita in the world, with 80 infections out of a population of 364,000. Later on in the episode, we'll talk to Foreign Policy's managing editor, Ravi Agrawal, who previously served as CNN's bureau chief and correspondent in New Delhi. So, James, before we get to that, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I did study political science. That's like the opposite of being a scientist. <laughs> Let me have it. It's, <laughs> um, it's a science. Um, but when I look at the list of countries which have experienced, you know, some of the highest numbers of coronavirus cases, they all have one of two things in common. They're all either democracies or they have advanced, well-developed economies. In fact, many of the countries that have been hit hardest so far are G7 member states. I mean, is there a possibility that the virus is spreading rapidly elsewhere in the world, but countries just don't yet have testing capabilities or the healthcare infrastructure to identify it? I don't think it's a possibility. I think it's a certainty. Huh. Uh, and I think that's a belief shared by most people who study these countries, most public health experts. Whenever I talk to people from sort of Mexico or Pakistan or India, there's this almost universal consensus that the numbers must be going up in mm-hmm. their in their country because they know what the situation is in terms of access to healthcare, people being able to Um, get tested, get the numbers. I mean, you know, look, we've seen in the United States in the last couple of weeks that this failure to provide testing kits, the difficulty of getting tested. And now Mm -hmm. you take that to much poorer countries without the ability, even if they have well-off urban centers, these enormous areas where people just don't have the ability to perhaps even know about the virus in a a real way to get to the lab to realize that they might have something to be tested. And, you know, we've been looking um, in particular at Indonesia, and Mm -hmm. we've run a couple of pieces on this, where it seems impossible that the number of cases is as low as it is. Uh, Last time I checked, which was a few days ago, it was, I think, just two. But Indonesia has this huge influx of Chinese tourists. It has a very large population, a lot of it very scattered. And the likelihood is just that these cases are not being picked up yet. A lot of cases, that's because they're poor people. And poor people have the least access to healthcare in, in pretty much all countries, you know, barring sort of the advanced European countries. 
So in places where you have to pay for healthcare, where you're paying out of pocket, which is most of the world, really, people just aren't going to go. People aren't going to get tested. People are going to rely on traditional medicines or street remedies or buying antibiotics over the counter. And this has all kinds of disastrous consequences for public health normally. But in an epidemic, it means you have this probably enormous number of cases we are just not seeing. Mm -hmm. I mean, could there be something else at play here? I mean, some reports have raised the question about whether different climates are just more or less conducive to spreading the virus. Well, I mean, you kind of run into the problem here that, you know, the terms global north, the developed world Mm -hmm. and global south exist for a reason. Most of those countries of the poorer countries are in those hotter temperature areas. But there's two things which I would say really rule against that. The first is that we haven't seen big numbers in northern countries either, like Mongolia, say. Mongolia is pretty poor. Mm -hmm. Mongolia has a very dispersed population and very poor health care, and it's had one case or one confirmed case, and it's right next to China. There's a bunch of contact between China and Mongolia, and even though a lot of the population is nomadic, you know, Ulaanbaatar is a city of a million, a million and a half people nowadays living in very clustered conditions, but only one case. And then we've seen countries that have more developed infrastructure or healthcare, but also very hot temperatures, such as Qatar and Bahrain. Uh, Qatar is reporting 262 cases. Bahrain is reporting nearly 200. And so those are a real counterpoint to this idea that the, the heat might stop the virus. And then there are also you know, very suspicious things showing up. So, for instance, with Egypt, Egypt at the moment only has 60 cases. So this all rules out this kind of idea that there could be some kind of magic bullet of the weather that prevents the virus from spreading or renders it much less likely. Now, there's one thing, which is that most viruses are susceptible to UV, um, in ultraviolet in some mm-hmm. way. And so time in the sun, the more time in the sunshine, both for infected people, for surfaces, that might really be making a difference. But a lot of this is just coming back without enough data yet. We just don't know. We can't yeah. tell. And I think dealing with that sense of uncertainty about what's out there and what the world is going to look like is something that is not going to go away over the next few months. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just still so much that we don't know about the virus. And even when summer comes around, if indeed there is a connection to to the seasons, it doesn't mean that we are getting off scot-free. The Spanish flu of 1918, which affected a third of the world's population, went away more or less over the summer, but then came back in the fall. And the second wave was even more deadly than the first. I mean, what about in China? Was there any regional variation in the spread of cases between northern and southern China? No, it was just about proximity to Wuhan. And so you have this big cluster of cases in Hubei, which is right in the center of China, conveniently for this thesis. Um, But in fact, the the northern numbers where it's colder and drier Mm -hmm. seemed somewhat lower. Um, There's always the question with China of the the data and whether it's reliable. And I, I think that the In terms of the geographical spread, it definitely is reliable because basically people are going to be manipulating the numbers for the same reasons all over the country. But we're seeing this phenomenon at the moment whereby the Chinese are kind of trying to take a victory lap. Mm. Xi Jinping just went to Wuhan to do this very stage-managed visit. Um, And that kind of worries me because although the lockdown has been remarkable and the lockdowns definitely played a big role in helping significantly reduce cases at this point, I think that there are probably lots of pockets out there that are not showing up in the numbers. And I'm worried that we're going to get a second wave of infection from that Mm. in China or a wave in the autumn as with the the Spanish flu, perhaps, or infections from other countries. 
And so this keeps coming back to the question of can we trust these numbers? Mm. What do these numbers look like? And there are two questions there. Are they sometimes being manipulated by governments that are unwilling to face the scale of the problem, whether that's in China or in the United States itself? Or is it a case of just ignorance of information that we simply can't get at this point? Yeah. I've been very curious about Russia's numbers. I think t- as of today, they're reporting 28 cases, which I just find to be suspiciously low for a country as large as Russia, but has a sizable population um, and a long historic tendency of looking to, to sweep bad news under the rug. On the other hand, I, I keep being advised that rubbing alcohol kills the virus. So this may be the Russian solution. They may just be so soaked in vodka permanently that the virus is unable to get a hold against the mighty Russian soul. But only if it's above, is it 70%? 70%, yeah. Right. Which even in which, I mean, come on, you've known Russians who would drink that. When I studied abroad in Russia, I had a friend whose host mother was a doctor and would get rubbing alcohol from the doctor's office and knew exactly how to boil it down to about 40% to make it drinkable. I've, I've seen some terrifying, like, like rural vodkas in Russia and Mongolia, just stuff that would kill, you know, it would kill anything, never mind the virus. And now, because we all know you find British accents so soothing in the time of crisis, um, we're joined by Ravi Agrawal, our managing editor, to talk about how India is preparing for what is now being described by the World Health Organization as a pandemic of coronavirus. So on Wednesday, Jim O'Neill, the former chief economist at Goldman Sachs, gave an interview to CNBC's Squawk Box and applauded the Chinese response to the outbreak um, and added, quote, thank God this didn't start in India, saying that there was no way the Indian government would have been able to handle this. Do you think that he's being fair to India? I think he is. I mean, it's as much a criticism of India as it is praise of China in that it would be so much harder for India to lock down as much of the country Mm -hmm. as China did for its citizens. And not only that, there's just a huge difference between the healthcare systems in the two countries, the levels of awareness, the literacy levels, the ability to deal with a major crisis like that. So uh, what he said does make sense. I mean, as we said at the beginning of the show, there's currently around 68 reported cases in India and just one death that's been reported. How reliable do you think those numbers are that we're seeing out of India? I think they're completely unreliable Mm -hmm. uh, on two counts. One is that, of course, there may be many, many more people affected infected, and we would just never know. And that's because there are very few testing centers in India. The virus could easily be spreading in places where people are just not likely to report it. Think of rural parts of India. There were Italian tourists who were diagnosed with the coronavirus, and they spent a lot of time in rural Rajasthan visiting uh, tourist sites. So they could have infected a whole bunch of people, and there would actually be no way of verifying what happened there. But I think the most serious issue here is that you could say for most countries that more people could be infected than we know. But what you can also say for most developed economies is that you know with relative degrees of certainty how many people have died. You Mm -hmm. cannot say that about India. The reason is that in India, to begin with, only 77% of deaths are registered in the first place. 22% of deaths are medically certified. That's it. Think about that. So if 22% of medical debts are certified, it is only one out of five debts where you get a sense of why someone died, so the causality. And given that that's the case, there could already have been debts mm-hmm. due to the coronavirus, and we wouldn't know. Yeah. 
So when we do start to see deaths out of India, do you think that the real figures will be four or five times higher? Or will they be paying so much more attention to this that there'll be better recording of cases? You can imagine that the Indian state, once it really panics, would move into high gear, would try to do a better job of recording things, especially in the cities where it's easier to record deaths and to figure out why people have died. But the problem is it may be too late by then. I mean, India has already taken some measures to screen at airports, although it's questionable how effective those screening methods are. It has also started screening at seaports. Again, questionable how effective that will be. It's closed the border with Myanmar. But then the thing is, as we know, this isn't just about stopping the spread anymore. This is about mitigation. And it is already there. It is clearly spreading. And given the inability to record things in India, given the inability to deal with things, what I'm most worried about with India is the fact that its hospitals will quickly be overwhelmed, is the fact that many people may not even take it seriously enough because of a lot of misinformation on social media. There are fake WhatsApp messages doing the rounds um, which say that herbal remedies could fix this the way they would fix uh, a head cold. There are government uh, legislators who have said that cow urine or cow dung could be a fix for something like this. So there are so many reasons to worry about what could happen in India. As with all stories out of India, it's a numbers game. The numbers always boggle the mind, except this time uh, it's on the low side. And, you know, we just saw the Indian state cancel all visas, but suspended them technically till April 15th. So they're clearly, you know, they're taking this seriously, but what kind of powers can they bring to bear? How much can the central government do and and how much is it dependent on sort of lower level uh, authorities, provincial governments that don't always get on with the centre in India? So on that, actually, funnily enough, there is precedent of shutting the state down. I mean, in states like Bengal, which have long had uh, what is known as a bund or closure for political reasons, uh, I remember those from growing up in Calcutta, they could just shut the entire city down, where you have no schools open, no businesses functioning, no one allowed on the streets. Uh, there is precedent. Uh, they are not going that far just yet. And I don't know if it's because the sense of panic hasn't reached a heightened state. I mean, Schools have been closed in many cities, in New Delhi particularly. People are being advised to work from home. The big Hindu festival of Holi, the festival of colors, was very subdued on Tuesday. Many people who would celebrate it. And I should explain, the way you celebrate Holi is by throwing colored powder at people. You often mix it with water. You rub it on people's faces. It's quite a rowdy, rambunctious festival. I was I was looking at one of the videos um, of the past, and it did, I, I'm counting the number of kind of transfer points of viruses during them. I mean, it was a little bit there terrifying. Many of them, yeah. It's a, but I mean, this is something that we're seeing across the world is this need to kind of close down festivals, shut down public life. And India seems like somewhere that has a particular joy in these kind of events and these public events. How are people going to cope if that stops, if that's taken away from them? Well, you know, I guess on the one hand, if the state forces it, they'll have to go ahead. But, you know, Indians also have a real sort of let's get on with it kind of uh, attitude. And that may explain some of the initial slowness to react to it. The flip side of that is that when things get really bad, 
you could have either draconian state responses or just out-and-out panic, in which case India is simply not equipped. I mean, again, in terms of hospitals, in terms of supplies of masks and gloves, in terms of uh, the ability to test. I think India only has 52 laboratories that can test. In New Delhi, there are two, but there's only one sample collection site. I mean, how do you even get there? How do you hand in your sample? How do you ensure that the results come through? There are a lot of uh, sort of funnel problems uh, in India, and all of that could go awry. I mean, in the best of circumstances, India has a lot of problems. But when things go wrong, things go really, really wrong. That was Ravi Agrawal, Managing Editor at Foreign Policy. Thanks for joining us, Ravi. Anytime. So before we go, I just want to flag some news that you can use. For years, Apple has claimed that iPhones can only be cleaned with a delicate lint-free cloth. But now, staring down a global pandemic, it turns out the iPhones can handle a Clorox or alcohol wipe pretty well. In the name of journalism, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal wiped down an iPhone 8 screen with a Clorox disinfectant wipe over 1,000 times. And the phone was fine. Your iPhones have always been nasty, but now you have an added incentive to give it a regular wipe down as coronavirus can live for days on metal and glass. And on that note, we had a reader question asking about cleaning your glasses. I talked to Annie Sparrow, who was on the show on Tuesday, who's an experienced doctor in hot zones. And uh, yes, you should clean your glasses because they're, they're a potential source of infection, particularly to your eyes, which are one of the most vulnerable points. You can use rubbing alcohol. You can just also just use a mixture of soap and water, but rubbing alcohol will avoid the smudges. So take extra care, uh, particularly if you're somebody who normally kind of, as I do, just like cleans them with a shirt or, you know, <laughs> the edge of my fingers. And don't forget, our website has some of the most informed articles about coronavirus from experts and journalists around the world. So if you're not a subscriber, please go to farmpolicy.com to sign up today. That's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you have a question about the coronavirus, you can email us at don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com or get in touch on Twitter using the hashtag DTYF podcast. Until next time, don't forget to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <laughs>